0: Scripture this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all may be seated. So I have with me right now uh, a golf club. Uh, this is a driver, if you all don't know what uh, golf clubs are. Um, this is a driver. Raise your hand if you like golf. Anybody? All right, honesty time. Raise your hand if you're good at golf. Uh, Gabe Marsh, put your hand down. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No. So this driver, uh, it's it's an older driver. As a matter of fact, it says oversized. And you all know modern drivers are way bigger than this. So this is probably a late 70s driver. Uh, This belonged to my great-grandfather. All right, and I keep this around. To me, this right here is more than just a driver. All right, I don't use it anymore. I I have an updated driver that I use. Matter of fact, this one's so old, it's made of metal, but it still sounds like wood. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how old this thing is. But to me, this is so much more than a driver because it reminds me of my great grandfather. My great grandfather owned a printing shop in Knoxville, Tennessee for many, many years. And what he would do is he would have bags of golf clubs, golf balls, and tees just along the wall of his shop. And if somebody came in who was, looks like they were having a bad day, or if he knew that that person didn't know who Jesus was, then he would ask them, hey, can I take you golfing? And if they said yes, he would, no matter what time of the day it was in, close the shop, Grab a couple golf bags and go golfing. He knew of several things, that if you get somebody uh, in a round of 18 holes of golf, you can get a lot of talking done in that time. And my great-grandfather uh, wanted to make sure that people knew Jesus, so he would spend 18 holes of golf talking to them about Jesus. He knew they couldn't escape. Uh, but, but So when I look at this driver, I'm not reminded of how it hit. I'm reminded of his generosity, and his selflessness, that he would close down his own shop to take people golfing so that they would know Jesus. You see, we pass these things on to our kids. We pass things on to our children and they stick with our children long after we are gone. Long after we're gone. There is a thing called generational discipleship that occurs all the time if you are a parent in this room or you are a grandparent or even if you don't have children but you influence people uh, around you then you have this generational discipleship it is passed on usually by just our kids seeing what we do Not as much what we say or specific times that we pull aside to have a teaching moment or a uh, discipline moment. Less of those and more of how we respond to things, how we act in certain situations, things that we say at certain times. These things are passed on to our children. It is what they watch. Sometimes, we forget to ask the question, what exactly are we passing on to our kids? What are we passing on to our kids? For the people of Israel, this was an issue. God gave many laws. If you go and read through the laws, all 613 that God gave to the people of Israel, you will find many places where God says that these are given for your children and your children's children and for their children. Because these laws, these rules, this understanding of how to worship God fully was not solely meant for the people who were there in that moment getting and receiving those laws. Or those who are there receiving the covenant, it was for their children and their children's children and so on and so forth. Which brings us to Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, what we know is that the Israelites are wandering the wilderness. They have been there for years. It has been years since the law had been given to the people of Israel. It has been years since they left captivity, slavery in Egypt. Many years have passed by. As a matter of fact, most likely that many of the older generations of the people of Israel who knew that they weren't going to get into the promised land have passed on. That is where they are. Moses himself knows at this point that he's not getting into the promised land. He knows that he is going to die and pass the mantle off to Joshua. But the state of Israel at this time, they came from Egypt, which is a polytheistic nation. And then if you read the book of Numbers, you see how they interact with other nations. They battle other nations. They become a part of other nations at times who serve false gods. So you have this reality of being exposed to false gods, and then you have generational forgetfulness, which leads to the people of Israel becoming disobedient. They become disobedient. So Moses, what he does is he pins three speeches. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's three speeches that Moses is giving to the people of Israel. And in these speeches, he is helping reestablish the covenant that was made to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. See, Mount Sinai was not just the place where the Ten Commandments were given, not just the place where these rules were given, no. Mount Sinai was the place where God established his people. That's where he established you are now the Israelites, you are my people, and I am your God. And he is reestablishing this with them. Because as time has passed, and generational discipleship has waned, people have forgot. They forgot. So in this passage of Deuteronomy chapter 6, there are two truths that we will look at today. Both of them have to do with generational discipleship. The first is this love God with all you are. Love God with all you are. Before we get into specifics on what it means to parent in a way that brings true discipleship to your children, we have to first start at ground zero, which is the parent. All of us in this room who are parents, our grandparents, this is for you. So I want all the kids in the room, raise your hand, all the kids. All right, I want you to look at your parents right now and say, this is for you. There it is. Little, little underage accountability here. That's what we're doing. All right, so this is for you. Before their instruction on how to parent, before Moses says, this is what you do with your children, he first establishes to the people about their own hearts. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This passage of scripture is known in Jewish culture as the Shema. It is a very popular passage in Jewish culture that is often quoted. Moses is using a literary technique called parallelism to make a point. It is hard to translate verse four in English, But the point he is saying is that the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That is what he is saying. This is not a random thought that he's just saying, hey, I want to teach you all about Trinitarian doctrine about how God is only one, but in three persons. That's not what he is saying. He's already covered this whole piece in Deuteronomy chapter four by reminding them of their time in Egypt. And how God, in all of his sovereignty, controlled all of creation to deliver them from slavery. And this is what he says in chapter four. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Hey, I know what you've seen, all right? I know what you've seen. In Egypt, we saw some pretty crazy stuff. We've, we've gone through some of these other countries and they've done some pretty crazy stuff, but here's what you need to know. There is only one God and there is no other and he is ours. That is what Moses is reminding them of here. So we deal with who God is and then we learn what we do with that. What does he say that we do? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This one sentence is the abbreviated version of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the abbreviated version of all 613 laws. So, this is the abbreviation of the abbreviation. But it's important because Moses is saying if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, they'll take care of themselves. They will. that you should love God with every aspect of who you are. There should be no place in you that does not love him fully. He deals with the heart. The heart in Hebrew culture would be the rationale. It's your understanding. The soul is your entire essence. It's your will. Your might is your actual physical self every single part of you is to love God fully. That's what Moses is saying. Every single part. What does this look like? Growing up, most of you know that I grew up a Tennessee Volunteers football fan. And from the age of five to 18, I didn't miss a home game. That's right, I got some air, yeah, that's right, some Tennessee Volunteers fans right here. All right. So, hey, we're few and far between, so we gotta stick together. Um, I, uh, uh, I did, I followed them, uh, went to every home game growing up. We, uh, not only did I go to every home game, but we scheduled our entire weekend around it. So like if, if there was a Tennessee football game at noon, then we were up earlier to make sure we were on campus hours before the game, hours before the game. Walking around campus, getting some food on Cumberland Avenue, uh, uh, watching the Vol Walk, which is where all the volunteers walk down the street, which is like, like this parade that we all have to see for some reason. And we all went down there to go watch it. The band was playing. We get into the stadium, get to our seats, get some food, snacks. It's just a big deal. Watch the, watch the Tennessee Vols run through the tee at the very beginning of the game. Just all, like, gets chills down your spine, right? So we do every week. And every week we do that. Even if, there were, even if it was a night game, even if it was like an 8 p.m, I remember one year we played Arkansas, and it was a 7:30 p.m. start, and it went into seven overtimes. Guess who stayed? This guy. Guess who was still at church the next day? Barely, OK? Like <laughs> Like I was there, but not there, you know what I'm saying? But what we would do, what we would do, is as soon as as soon as we were done, the very next day, we were already making plans for what we were going to do next weekend. We already thinking through. Okay, so if the game time starts at this. We'll do this. Lunch here. We'll leave here. We'll all meet up here. We'll go together. We'll park here. La la la. Go through all the plans. Then throughout the week, I'm checking stats. I'm comparing statistics between the team we're playing and our team just all week long, like, oh, I think we could beat him if if our cornerback would just guard him. Like, I'm doing, I'm digressing this all in my head. Remember, I'm like seven, okay? Like, just doing this all the time, checking up on injury reports, seeing if our guys are gonna be ready to play, all of these things I would do. If Tennessee lost, you couldn't pick me up off the floor. If Tennessee won, I would make sure I found somebody on Facebook or in person who was a fan of the other team and make sure they remembered what happened. Tennessee won. I would do that. That carried on into my marriage. Yes, it was one night that my wife finally looked at me, Who's sitting back here, looked at me one time and was like, I think this is unhealthy. (laughs) Like, I remember specifically one night and, and this was not too long ago, because Christian was here, uh, was, we, she had made dinner and we were at the dinner table and, and the Tennessee game was on in the living room. So I would take a bite, walk over here, okay. Take a bite. We just scored a touchdown and I missed it. Like that's, that's what was happening until finally it hit me. I'm like, this is not good. This is not good, why? because I was even forsaking good things to put my whole heart in that. My joy was determined by whether they won, my happiness. I would schedule everything around it. I loved Tennessee football with my whole self, with my whole self. And what Moses is saying here is that that kind of devotion is meant for one person and one person alone, and that's God. And I had to learn the hard way. It's meant for one person, and that is God our Father. Even Jesus himself said that this right here was the greatest commandment. In Matthew 22, he's talking to a Pharisee, and the Pharisee asked him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Remember, the great commandment in the law. He's looking for a specific one, a specific one. Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, I don't know if y'all know Exodus 19, like I know Exodus 19, but that's not the first commandment. But Jesus says it's the great and the first. He quotes Moses here. We know of at least two times that Jesus quotes this specific sentence. Another time in the book of Luke chapter 10, he's speaking to a lawyer who's trying to trick Jesus. Says, how do you inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus Himself says, this is the greatest and first commandment. If you love God with only one aspect, it is incomplete. If you Love God with only one aspect. It is incomplete. Loving God partially is not loving God at all. Loving Him partially is not loving Him at all. You may fall into one of these categories. I know I have. That you come here to church. You're here on a weekly basis. You serve in ministry. You come in here. You lift up your hands in worship. And then outside of here, there's nothing. There's no heart change there's no personal devotion to him. If that is the case, then you are what Jesus would call a whitewashed tomb. Fancy on the outside, but dead on the inside. Or you may be someone who, I believe God internally, with all that I am inside here. But then that never works its way out in any aspect of your life. That if someone looked at you, they would have no idea that you were a believer then you have what James would call a dead faith. Or maybe you're someone who likes to steep to intellectual descent. I love to know all about theology. I wanna know all the aspects of it, all Christian doctrine. I just wanna learn it and grow smarter. And if that is what you equate with holiness, then you have missed the simplicity of the gospel. I've fallen into these categories We all have at some point. But loving God fully is loving God with your whole self. So he says this in verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Shall be on your heart. Why? Because what begins in our hearts makes its way out right? My devotion for Tennessee football was here. Most definitely it was here, and it worked its way out to where it affected people around me. What's written here works its way out, which we'll see later in this passage. A couple of questions to ponder on that you can ask weekly. These questions were convicting for me. The first one is this. Do I worship God privately like I worship him publicly? Do I worship God privately like I worship him publicly? It was Jesus in Matthew chapter six where he said, when you pray, don't go to the street corner and pray loudly for everyone to hear, use eloquent words. And No, he said, go into your closet and pray alone for your father in heaven will hear you. Second question Do I display the fruit of the Spirit publicly as well as I can quote them? Do I display the fruit of the Spirit as well as I can quote them? It is one thing to know Scripture, it is another thing entirely to live in it. So Moses says the first thing that you do is love God with all you are. And then he says, secondly, to work out your faith in your household. Work out your faith in your household. So this is where generational discipleship begins to play out. But we as parents, as grandparents, as leaders who influence people younger than us, we have to understand that it first starts with loving God completely. Then Moses says, "'You shall teach them diligently to your children "'and shall talk, uh, talk of them when you sit at your house "'and when you walk by the way "'and when you lie down and when you rise.'" The phrase to teach them diligently is one word in the Hebrew. It means to sharpen. It's only used nine times in scripture. And it's the only time it's used in regards to other people. To sharpen. It is like etching with a chisel in wood. So I have a picture up here. For those of you who know me know that I love Disney. Raise your hand if you love Disney. Any Disney people in the room? All right, we got a few. All right, so this right here is Vincent. Everybody say Vincent. This right here is Vincent. Vincent uh, works at the Animal Kingdom in uh, Disney World, and he literally carves animals out of wood. That's what he does all day. You can walk by his booth, talk to him. You can even give him requests that you're gonna pay for later. You could take it right out of his hand and pay for it. He's a really nice guy. Um, old Vincent here. And I know this picture is kind of small. Some of you may not be able to see, but he is chiseling. He has an elephant in his hand and it came from a block of wood that looked like that. All right. So wood carving is a skill that you can develop. It takes a lot of practice. It takes years to develop. But what you have to have to do something that Vincent is doing right here is the first thing you have to do is you have to have vision. You have to be able to look at a block of wood and say, "Uh, I see this as an elephant or I see this as a tiger, or whatever. Before you can even begin the process, you have to be able to look and have vision. Then you have to have concentration. Concentration. You have to be able to concentrate. If you're like me, you get distracted easy, like you know, somebody could sneeze, and I'm like, oh, I've lost my focus, I make the wrong cut. You have to have concentration to be able to do that. You have to have precision. You have to make cuts at the right time, in the right place, at the right depth, or otherwise you cut the whole elephant's leg off. Right? You have to do it with precision. But you know what you also have to have? Time. Time. I'm imagining for Vincent that he can't carve that element in 10 minutes. It takes him time to be able to do that. This right here, this act that he is doing, is what Moses says we do to our children. In order to sharpen them, we have to have vision. We have to concentrate. We have to have precision. And you also have to know that you have time. Time. This process is ongoing. They will not be made fully in the image of God by the time they're five. As bad as we all want it, They won't be. It takes time. So we teach them when you talk to them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. This is metaphorical. All of what Moses says after this is metaphorical. But you need to know that this includes the totality of time. That there is no time throughout the day where it is not necessary to be doing this because it happens all of the time. It happens all the time. And we should take time to sharpen them all of the time. If you look at the disciples and Jesus in that relationship, there's only one time where it was scheduled that he was going to teach them. Only one time. The rest of the time that he's teaching his disciples throughout the gospels is on the go. When they wake him up on a boat over the sea that's storming, when he teaches them there. Or when James and John, the brothers, come up to him and ask if they could be one at his right hand, one at his left hand. He teaches them there. It is on the go. Jesus taught the disciples to love God in everyday conversation. It was on the go that Jesus taught the disciples to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Then he says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, this is metaphorical, but some took this literal in post-biblical Judaism, there was a group of Jews. who They had this box in the temple, it's called a, a tarot. And it would, it would be a box that held all of the words of Torah. And so, so then there was one group of Jews who were like, you know what, Let's, we, we, we read Deuteronomy chapter six, we think this is literal. So what they would do is they would make smaller boxes, put the words of Torah in the smaller boxes and they would literally tie them to their wrist and walk around with them all day. So that people knew, we took it serious that we have the words of Torah bound to our wrists, just as Moses tells us to do in the Shema. But it was not literal. No. This is a continuation of what Moses said just a minute ago, that it will be written on your hearts. And after it is written on your hearts, then it will come out through your hands and be on display on your forehead all the time. Once it's written on your hearts, then this is, follows. And then in verse nine, you shall rot them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You must understand that this was fresh on their minds. Moses knew that this phrase would catch their attention. He had to have known why. They are wandering in the wilderness right now because of their disobedience. Because of their disobedience to the one God, the one and only God, who exerted his sovereignty over all of creation to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt, sending the 10 plagues over Egypt, the 10th plague itself, the spirit of death that was gonna come and kill the firstborn son in every household, unless, unless you kill a spotless lamb and you paint its blood on your doorpost and if you do that then the spirit will pass over your house and salvation will come to you and your family moses knew if he used doorpost that to them it would make sense the israelites look at the blood on the doorpost and they are reminded of God's salvation. Writing these words on the doorpost of our homes is not for decoration, but for remembering salvation. The words of scripture that you may have that are for decoration in your home, we have them at our house too. It is not for decoration. It is for remembering salvation. That is what it is for. For the Israelites, it was an actual literal spotless lamb that when they, when they killed it and they put the blood on the doorpost, they would have salvation come to their house that day. For us, it is the blood of Jesus. It is the spotless lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And it is by his blood that we sit here today that we have salvation, that we get to go through scripture, that we get to have anything pressed on our heart at all. It is all because of the blood of Jesus. So we put that on the doorpost of our house, not on the drywall, but on the foundation itself, that it should be about Jesus and all about Him. It should be about the Lamb whose blood was shed for us. And when it is in our house and worked out in that way, then when people look at us, they know. They know. Our kids know what we're about, people around us know what we are about, that we love. Jesus, and that we love him with everything that we are. So what do we do with this? Here's some points of what family discipleship is not. First off, family discipleship is not spiritual exploration. It's not spiritual exploration. It's not releasing your kids to go figure it out all by themselves. To, to look at culture and to kind of figure out which way it's right. No, family discipleship is in fact indoctrination. We have literal doctrine that we are to teach. It is not you figure it out, it is this is what the Lord says. Secondly, family discipleship is not using the word of God in order to get your way. It is not using the word of God to get your way. Multiple couples who have come to my office for marriage counseling who cannot resolve an argument to save their life. Their arguments have somewhat been ended with the husband saying, Scripture says that you should submit to me. That's learned. If you use Scripture in your house that way, that is wrong. It's wrong. That is not what scripture is for, for you to hold as a leverage to get what you want. It is for holiness. Family discipleship is not a strategy to become an admired parent. It's not a strategy to become an admired parent so that you can look good. I did all the right things. I read all the books, read the blogs. I wrote the blogs. No, it is not in any way meant to be prideful to you, but in every way is a sending of your child back to God. Lastly, family discipleship is not always the most appealing path. Reality check: Your kids aren't going to like it. They won't. When you begin to chisel away at the things that don't look like Jesus in your kids, they get angry. Very much as we adults get angry when that happens. Right? We do. It's not the most appealing path, but it is what's best. Four points to take home, and then I'm done. Number one, model it. Model it the single greatest gift you could give to your children is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's it. It's the greatest gift you could give to them. When you live it out, they know you are who you say you are. Secondly, would be to make time. Make time for those moments. Make time for teaching points or for correction. We have... Uh, in our Kid Life ministry on, on Sunday nights, we give uh, every month curriculum to parents that it's for a whole month that every single week it gives you specific times that you can take advantage of, specific questions that you can begin to ask, uh, conversations to have, even scripture to go over with your kids. It is full, it is easy to use, and it does this. Make time for it. Three, be aware of discipleship moments. Most of these times are gonna happen on the go. They're mostly gonna happen on the go, which is scary to me as the parent because I have to process things hard before I can say something that's like good, especially to my kids, am I right? Like you really gotta think before you say things or what's gonna come out, it's not good for anybody. On the go discipleship is most of the time what's gonna happen. And lastly, celebrate milestones. Baptism, graduation, celebrate the life out of those. Those are big deals, very big deals. Let them know how big it is. And they will pass that on. We are called as parents to love God fully and to work out our faith in our own household, and we can do that because of the strength and blood of Jesus. That's the only way we can do this. It's not me just telling you to do it. Hey, you go do better. Just, just I need you to do better. That's not it, this at all. This has been the most convicting sermon I've ever preached to myself. We only can do this because of Jesus. Lean on him. Trust in him. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And I thank you for how amazing you are. I thank you that we have the opportunity to be here to worship you. Lord, there are so many prayer requests that were mentioned today. I know that in your divine hand, you can heal them. Lord, I praise you that there are two men sitting in this room who I honestly thought wouldn't be here today. But they are sitting here worshiping you I'm so thankful. Lord, I pray that as we go from here as parents and as grandparents that we would take your word, that we would apply this, that in all we do we show that we love you. It is in your name we pray.